You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today's episode is a solo episode, not only that, but it's the beginning of a series on the book of Exodus that I'm calling Pete Ruins Exodus just because I like being that kind of guy. But, you know, this is not about ruining anything. It's more about digging deeper into something that is familiar to a lot of people. The story of Exodus sort of has this universal appeal. But I'd like to take a look at this book from other angles, not ones we might have gotten from Veggie Tales or the Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt or something like that, because there's a lot going on. This is a, a deeply theological book, and I think it's just a fun thing to look at. That's all. I just like the Bible, and I want to talk about it, so here we go. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies, and... She said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Also, I said a series, and this is a series, do not hold me to how many episodes, I have no idea. It just depends on how things go. We'll see. It could be three, it could be 30, not 30, but it's going to be something more than just a couple, because there's a lot going on, you know, and and especially with the first mm, three, four chapters, those are such thick and rich chapters. So much information is just baked into these chapters that I think it, it's well worth our time to maybe slow down a little bit at the beginning and take larger chunks as we go on. That's sort of what I'm planning. So my plan then is to sort of, as we'll see in a second, divide the book of Exodus into sections. And for each section, sort of drop down into the book and focus on things that I think are interesting or important or the kinds of things a lot of people talk about, all for the purpose of helping us understand the theology of this book more clearly, because it is a book of theology, there's no question about that. Now, as we get started, there are a couple of background issues that all have to do with history that keep coming up, and I want to sort of introduce them here. We'll come back to them occasionally during the course of these podcasts. 
But the first has to do with authorship of the book, namely who wrote it and when, and the bottom line is nobody knows. Nobody really knows who wrote the book of Exodus. In fact, most scholars think that it was compiled more than written from various traditions over several centuries and then brought together at a later time in Israel's history. And that is pretty much my point of view as well. But it's not the most important thing we'll talk about here, because we're going to try to deal on the level of where theology and history sort of come together and not focus entirely on things like where did the book come from, who wrote it. Those things are relevant. We'll see that in a second. But it's not the focus. But the bottom line is nobody really knows who wrote the book. And to say that Moses wrote it is really a guess because the book's anonymous, just like Genesis. They're all anonymous. We don't know who wrote any of these books. And tradition has Moses, but a lot of work, not just in the modern period, but even going back to medieval Judaism, and even before that, people have picked up that it's hard to look at a book like Exodus and say one person wrote this in one sitting at the time of Moses's life, which might have been around the 13th century or something like that. It's unlikely that that's the case. But this podcast series is not about that, but I'm just throwing it out there because it'll come up. And the other issue is just, you know, the basic issue of historicity, fancy way of saying, did any of this happen? And so what I'll do is, as we go through the podcast, is say things like, you know, in the logic of the narrative, because I don't necessarily want to commit myself to whether things happened or didn't happen. I do think things happened, and we'll get to that in a second, too. But, you know, again, defending the book historically is not my point. I don't want to defend anything, and I don't want to presume anything one way or the other. I want to just let the book sort of have its way and talk the way it wants to talk. But did any of this happen? That's you know a question that's of some importance, especially for, for some modern readers, not for everyone. And I think of it this way. See, the reason why digging into history is actually more than just interesting, but it's important, is that while well, these texts were written by people at some point in time in the past— and knowing something of context, knowing something of when, might help us understand something of why these texts were written. I mean, think about this. Pick a figure like you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Franklin Delano Roosevelt and say, yeah, I want to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. I want to talk about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And somebody might say, okay, well, you know, for, for Martin Luther King Jr., we have to talk about also just the setting of, you know, the 1960s civil rights movement. And he said, no, wait a minute, I, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I just want to talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Or FDR. Yeah, he's, you know, he helped America get out of the Depression, and he was a president during the Second World War. And somebody says, hold on a second here. I, who cares? I just want to talk about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And you can see how nonsensical that is, right? You have to talk about context because human beings are contextual beings and social beings, and no one's an island. So knowing something about the past setting might help us understand the theology of the text, which is really the goal for me. And not only that, but you have, you have sort of a triangle here. You've got history, theology, and then the other aspect is the Bible as literature, and it is. And we'll see that too here in the book of Exodus. But think of it this way. You have a writer living in history who is trying to communicate something of a theological nature through writing, and how he writes the literature, when he writes the history, affect how we read the theology, right? Those things all sort of hang together. So, you know, to just read Exodus without a view towards, let's say, literature or history, it can really wind up obscuring the message and not helping it very much. 
Now, just a few more words about history, because again, this is something that comes up a lot, and so much of this book is an object of apologetic defense, like, did the Exodus happen as the Bible says it did? And just to introduce it here, I don't want to get into it too much, we'll see things along the way, but it's worth noting, first of all, that there is no, there's no direct evidence whatsoever for an Israelite presence in the land of Egypt at any point in time. In other words, there's just nothing there, there's no, nothing Egyptian, and the only source we have is an Israelite source, the Bible. We don't have any musings from other nations, right? We don't have any sort of material evidence, in other words, archaeological evidence. There's just, there's nothing there. There's evidence for a lot of things that are in the Bible, but for this big event, we just don't see much. And that's at least worth stating. That doesn't prove nothing happened, but it's at least a fact. It is a fact that we don't have evidence. Now, some say, not to get into this too much, but some say that why would we expect the Egyptians to, let's say, talk about this humiliating defeat on the part of a slave population that left Egypt? Why would they say they would want to bury that and not talk about it? And that's just not true. What ancients did was when something bad happened, they didn't try to ignore it, they spun it. I would expect something, and we see this actually elsewhere in the Old Testament vis-a-vis other nations and how they talk about things. We would expect the Egyptians to have spun it and said, well, listen, our gods were mad at us, and so therefore we lost our slaves. It's not that we're weak, it's that we were disobedient. That's a common ancient way of handling embarrassing moments. And plus, you can't really keep this quiet because it's not like no one would have heard of it. Right? I mean, it was pre-internet, but still, you know, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Babylonians, somebody would have heard of this mass escape of slaves and the economic and ecological destruction of Egypt. Right? So, it's hard to imagine that the silence of Egyptian sources is actually an argument for historicity, which is how some people try to defend it, but I think it just doesn't work. Having said that, I, th- I think there is a suggestive evidence for the fact that something happened, which is sort of my position, something happened, right? And for example, one of the oldest pieces of Hebrew literature that we have, it comes from the book of Exodus, it's chapter 15. Now, the oldest manuscripts we have of Exodus are, you know, a couple hundred years before Christ, not, nothing really before that. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? That's the, that's the oldest textual evidence we have of anything in the Bible, with a couple of exceptions, but not really relevant for this discussion. But chapter 15, called the Song of Moses or the Song of the Sea, this is considered by linguists to be evidence of very old writing on the part of the Hebrews. It could go as far back as about 1200 BCE which would make it very old, right? And would make it not long after these kinds of events would have transpired. And just think about that. You see, Exodus 15 is a song praising Yahweh for killing the Egyptians in the sea. That's really what it is. You're so great, you're awesome, blah, blah, blah. And probably Exodus 15 is was, was changed and adapted and added to later in Israel's tradition. Probably the Exodus 15 that we have was not all old from the 12th century, but there are elements of it that linguists say make sense in that time period. I mean, think of it this way. If someone were to find a manuscript that has like a lost Shakespearean play or something like that, you know, we would know instinctively where to put that historically. We wouldn't put it in the 19th century. We put it, wouldn't put it in the 12th century. 
we would have put it in the 21st century. We'd put it where it belongs, right in the middle there somewhere, right? Because we know enough about the development of the English language to know pretty much where things should belong. That's what linguists do of Semitic languages like Hebrew and others. They're able to sort of see evolutionary developments in languages because all languages evolve, all languages develop. And you can see signs of that in Exodus 15, along with passages like Judges chapter 5. This is the story of Deborah. That's another one. Very often scholars will look at Genesis 49, sort of Jacob's last words to his sons before he dies. But it's, it's interesting, like this is suggestive that the earliest memory we have of the Israelites is something that has to do with departing from Egypt, right? It's interesting. You know, that, that's like the earliest record we have. It's also the earliest record we have of Yahweh as, as a warrior, which doesn't stay that way throughout the whole Bible. But, you know, early depictions of Yahweh as a warrior who rescues his people and beats up the Egyptians. So that suggests that this is a very old memory on the part of the Israelites, and it's not, say, made up after the exile or something like that. Another sort of echo of history here is several of the names, one of which is Moses' name itself. And we'll get back to that soon enough. But, you know, Moses is almost, it just sounds like an Egyptian name. You know, you have that element, Moses, that's at the end of other names like King Tut, King Tut Moses. That's the full name, which means something like born of a god, born of the god Tut or Toth, spelled, pronounced differently, depending on who you ask. But see, that Moses element seems to be part of an originally longer Egyptian name. That doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove the historicity of Moses, doesn't prove the historicity of the Exodus. What it does indicate, though, is that there is an Egyptian memory. There's something about Egypt that seems to be real and strong in Israel's memory that would inspire the writing down of stories like this. So it it's, doesn't seem like this is simply made up out of whole cloth. I mean, who would make up, frankly, a story of national origins that goes, yeah, we were slaves for a long time, and then we escaped? You know, this, it doesn't seem like the kind of story that you're going to make up out of whole cloth. There seems to be a real authentic memory of something that has made its way through Israel's tradition and is now written down. What some scholars say and even evangelical scholars, I, should, I shouldn't say even, but just to, just to indicate how relatively broad this, uh, this way of thinking about it is, a way of looking at this book of Exodus is what some call mythicized history. And if you're interested, I think I wrote a blog post about this a year or so ago, and you can find it on the website. But mythicized history, in other words, it's history that's mythicized. Something happened, but then the way they tell the story gets overlaid with mythic elements. And, I'm, and I use that word without any embarrassment or shame or hesitation, because that's what they are. They're, we'll get into this. They're mythic elements that are used to communicate the full force of the impact of this story. They're ways of telling stories of origins in the ancient world, and employing mythic themes is one of them. And we see that in the book of Exodus. But here's the point. The root of it is some historical experience that that gets told in a mythicized way, as opposed to the opposite, not historicized myth, but mythicized history is what I'm saying. Others, you say, it, you know, this is really not a view that's that common anymore, but it would be not mythicized history, but historicized myth. In other words, it's something that's foundationally mythic, and then you just put some names and places attached to it and to make it look historical. 
That doesn't seem to be the case. You're in pretty safe ground saying something like, there's a historical base, but it's mythicized. And that's just the way they told stories back then. Okay. Again, those are two preliminary issues, authorship and historicity. And we'll get back into all this stuff, no doubt, as we continue this series. But here, let's start this way. The big picture. Exodus, second book of the Bible. Got it? Good. 40 chapters long, and I like looking at books of the Bible, like from a 30,000-foot view. And when I do that, I see these 40 chapters, and I divide the book into two parts. The first 15 chapters are all about departing from Egypt, and then the rest of the book are all about the Sinai experience. So 1 to 15, and then basically 16 to 40. Most of Exodus happens on Mount Sinai. By the way, Mount Sinai is really the location of not just most of Exodus, but all of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. Basically, the center chunk, the heart of the Pentateuch, takes place on Mount Sinai. And about a year transpires in the logic of the narrative, about a year transpires on Mount Sinai, which means it's like you're really slowing down the clock here and spending a lot of time at what happens on this mountain which is an indication to us that this is important. (laughs) And Exodus is really about getting to Mount Sinai. That's really what the story's about. So let's break this down a little bit further, because this is where we're going to go with this series. Chapters 1 to 15, this is all about the departure from Egypt. And I would say the first four chapters are all about preparation. It's about the preparation for the actual departure. The problem is introduced, Moses is introduced, and we can sort of see where this is going. Then, starting in chapter 5 and going to chapter 13, now we have sort of Moses engaged with Pharaoh, and they're battling, and it's the plague narrative. And then chapters 14 and 15 are the story of the departure from Egypt itself, the Red Sea crossing, or the Sea of Reeds. We'll get to that too. It's probably Sea of Reeds. It's not Red Sea. But chapter 14 is the narrative version of the departure from Egypt. And chapter 15 is the poetic section. That's that one of the older sections of uh, Hebrew literature, as I mentioned before. Right? So you have the preparation, the plagues, then the departure. That's the first 15 chapters. The rest of the book is all about, first of all, getting to Mount Sinai. That's chapters 16 to 18, and then they arrive in chapter 19. And again, they won't depart from there until Numbers chapter 10. So they're going to be there for a long time. Then the laws... That's chapters 20 through 24, 20 is the Ten Commandments, and then the rest are something called the Book of the Covenant, which we'll look at some of those laws later on in this series. And then comes this tabernacle section. That begins in chapter 25, like the last, more than a third of the book is taken up with something to do with the tabernacle. And it's a bit tedious. You know, we're not going to spend 15 weeks on the tabernacle, but we're going to spend a little bit of time because there's stuff happening there that's really, really interesting theologically. This is the stuff you skip. You know, if you're reading through Exodus and you make it past the laws, like, you just give up here in the tabernacle section because who cares, right? But the instructions for building the tabernacle are chapters 25 to 31, and then the actual building of the tabernacle are chapters 35 to 40. Sandwiched in between is the famous episode of the Golden Calf chapters 32 to 34. And we'll take each of those in turn, obviously, when we get there. But that's that's the basic gist of it. And I thought today, we've got a little bit of time, we can just start off here with section one and see where we go. Because I have no idea where we're going. We'll see where we go. Who knows where we'll end up? Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants, 
and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Anyway, okay. Hey, section one, this is about chapters one to four. And this is about the preparation, as I said. And we're going to take a little more time here, because these are thick chapters, and there's a lot going on. It's not just preliminary stuff to get out of the way. It sets up what's going to follow, and I think it's worth paying some attention to. So, you know, the big view here, these first four chapters, is that there's a problem, a big problem. From the Egyptian point of view, here's the problem. The problem is that there are too many Israelites, and they might rebel. So the solution is eventually, well, there are actually three that are attempted. One is enslavement, and that sort of works, but it doesn't work. We'll look at that in a second. And then another is you have the midwives, are told, if you're familiar with the story, the midwives, these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, they are told to kill the male children when they're born. That doesn't work. And then eventually the third solution is to throw the male Hebrew children into the Nile. So, Israel is under threat. They're not just enslaved, they're actually under threat, and that poses a problem, right? Israel's under threat, and now another solution is offered, and this solution is, of course, Moses. Moses is called to deliver the Israelites, and so we're introduced to Moses here in this part of the story. So, in chapter one, these are just some things that I think that are worth noticing, and throughout I'll be looking at the New Revised Standard Version if you want to follow along, that'll be fine too. In fact, I hope you do, as long as you're not driving. 
All right, so chapter one. Here, here are some things that I think are worth noticing in the chapter that aren't always drawn out. And uh, I have three, actually three in the first chapter. The first is the introduction of a theme that will become very, very important in the course of this book, and that is the theme of creation. And you can see this already. It's, it's hidden a little bit, but not too much. In chapter one, look at verse seven. It talks about how the Israelites were fruitful and prolific, and they multiplied. This is echoing Genesis 1 language, because the, the Israelites are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're in accordance with God's will by increasing in number, which is exactly the thing that has this Pharaoh freaked out, this unnamed Pharaoh freaked out. And so he wants to do something about this. There are too many. They might actually rebel against us and join with their enemies and fight against us. If we can't have this, we have to sort of keep them under wraps, which is why he enslaves them. That's the first attempt. But you see, we, can, we should not lose sight here of how Pharaoh and Egypt are being posited here by the writer as sort of an anti-God force. Not just Boyd's enslavement, but the problem they have is that there are too many Israelites, which is exactly what God wants. So by trying to keep the population down, they're going against, let's say, the creation mandate. And as I said, this is something that... Uh, will come up again and again and again in especially the first 15 chapters. Actually, no, the whole book, what am I talking about? The whole book has this creation theme happening, and it's introduced to you already. And actually, when they're enslaved, as an attempt to curtail the population, we read in verse, what is it, 11, that, uh, no, ver actually verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So it actually backfires. That attempt to reduce the population actually results in them increasing all the more. So this is an indication of God's favor. This is actually an indication of where this whole book's going. Egypt's attempt to hold the Israelites at bay and to squash the Israelites and to squash their God are going to backfire. They're not going to work. And this is already hinted at here at the very beginning. And, and you know, actually, speaking of Genesis here, this is a connection back to Genesis 1, but there's another interesting connection here to Genesis which again shows us something of the literary style and intentionality of this writer. Because in verse 10, right, this is the people saying, look, the Israelites, they're more numerous, more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And that same cadence, that same language is used in the Tower of Babel story. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a tower up to heaven. And of course, that effort, if you know that story, is squashed by God, because God later says, come, let us go down and see. See, the divine response also begins, come, let us. And as you're reading this, you see here an echo of the Tower of Babel story. So again, this is an indication that at some point in the Exodus story, God is also going to have a come, let us moment, and that's called the plagues and the Red Sea, right? So it's, it's not terribly subtle. It actually jumps out at you when you're reading this story, and if we're looking for and even expecting these writers to make these connections to other parts of their story, especially the book of Genesis, oh boy, is Genesis just a wonderful place for this writer to go to draw connections with the story of the Exodus. If we're expecting that, we're going to see it. And I think we should keep our eyes open to all that sort of stuff. Hey everyone, my name is Esther Getz and I'm from a sleepy little town called Sterling, New Jersey. I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. One thing I have appreciated about this podcast is how funny Pete is, my love language is sarcasm, and also how Jared puts up with him and gets him back on track. But seriously, they are insightful teachers and kind guides 
And this podcast has been one of the most helpful parts of the re-raveling of my faith journey. If you have gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. Thanks to Jacqueline Van Beek, Romulo M. Morishita, Stephen Goulstone, Stefan M. Mock, and Scott Cockroft. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. So creation theme, that, that's a big thing. A second thing is women in Exodus are being introduced here. And, you know, we have a few of them, especially in chapter two, we'll get to that. They, they're sort of heroes by undermining the work of this Pharaoh. See, if we have these two women, Shifra and Pua, by the way, who are named and Pharaoh isn't. And I think one reason why Pharaoh isn't named, because this may be very distant past memories, and it doesn't even matter who the Pharaoh is, but they, maybe they don't remember his name. But the point is that they do remember these midwives' names, because they do something pretty good. They outwit the king, and they do so by lying, right? The king says to uh, the Pharaoh, rather, he says to, you know, kill the male children when they're born, and they're not doing it. And he says, what's going on? And they say, you know, you don't understand, by the time we get there, these Hebrew women are so vigorous, by the time we get there, they've already given birth. These are amazing women. They just drop kids all over the place. We can't get there in time. That's not true. That's a lie. And what a lot of my students wind up asking about this story, maybe you've asked it too, is, you know, why do they lie and why is it okay with God to lie like that? And I tell them, and I, with, with complete respect, I said, that's a very white question to ask. That's a very privileged question because when you're living in a time where you don't have power, where you're disenfranchised, where you're marginalized, you have no power. There's no court to go to. There's no lawyer. There's no legal system. If you want to get away with stuff that you know is right, that you know that you have to do in the face of absolute power, which is the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, you have to be crafty and you have to lie. And this is not the only time we see this sort of thing in the Bible. You have to sort of tell stories to people in power to outwit them. See, this is really not lying. This is outwitting. This is using your wiles and your abilities to um, think on your feet to allow God's purposes to go forward. So it's it's not a moral issue, you know, oh no, they're lying and it's bad to lie. It's not bad to lie. Not here. <laughs> There's actually something that scholars study, it's called the trickster theme. And this is a theme that appears in many places in the Old Testament, where, just like it suggests, you are tricking others because you're disenfranchised and you're out of power, and this is what you have to do. And again, we're going to meet other women, especially in chapter 2 with Moses' sister and Pharaoh's daughter. So you have these... This group of women in chapters one and two who outwit the almighty Pharaoh, which makes him look rather ridiculous that, you know, he's being so easily outwitted by these women. And I think that's, my my opinion, that's the intention of the writer. It's not simply, it's not to elevate women in the abstract, although we can read it that way. I don't think that's the intention of the writer. 
my opinion, right? I don't think it's to elevate women as much as it is to make Pharaoh look ridiculous that you have his sister, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh's own daughter, and these two lowly Hebrew midwives who are slaves. They're able to outwit this Pharaoh so he doesn't know what's going on. And as a result, Moses is drawn into the household of Pharaoh, and he grows up there, which will have rather significant implications as the story goes on. Okay, third thing. So we have the creation theme, the introduction of women in Exodus, and also this idea of drowning the male children in the Nile. That's the third of the three attempts on the part of Pharaoh to reduce the population of the Israelites. It's only the male children, of course, as it is with the midwives. Here it is with the Nile. It's only the males because they're the ones who go to war. They're also the ones through whom the lineage is traced. And so if you want to further disenfranchise a people that have, let's say, a nationalistic or an ethnic identity, the way to do that is to get rid of the men, the women become the property of other men, namely Egyptians, and so you get rid of them, right? That's, so this, this makes some sense historically, but the men here are thrown into the Nile, male infants are thrown into the Nile for drowning, and we have to think here of how this story will end, the Red Sea, and especially the 10th plague too, the 10th plague and the Red Sea. The way many interpreters, especially Jewish interpreters throughout history have read this is that the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn, and also the Red Sea, which is the drowning of the Egyptians, that's sort of tit for tat. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you do this to my children at the beginning, Yahweh says, justice means it will happen to you at the end. And that's the 10th plague and the crossing of the Red Sea. And the plagues as a whole are really, in my opinion, just an on-ramp to get to the Red Sea episode. There are 10 plagues. They're rather drawn out. We'll get into all that stuff. It could have been one plague. It could have been none. It could have just been go out. But, you know, just leave, just part, go through the Red Sea. But you have this 10 plagues, and it sort of goes on for a bit. But it's all about building up the tension for that final moment where God finally does what, again, in the logic of the narrative, God finally does what God has been wanting to do, namely, vengeance on the Egyptians. You will die because of how you treated my children. Yeah, it's interesting. When we get to chapter four, we'll see how when God tells Moses to confront Pharaoh, he says, is this what you say? Israel is my son, my firstborn. See, Israel is like God's child and if you do this to my children, then your children are going to get it too. It's a sort of a, it, it makes sense. The theology makes sense, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, it may be a little bit gruesome, the violence here, but again, you're reading the Bible, folks, we got to get used to the violence. It's all over the place. Okay. Anyway, so those are three sort of things that happen in the first chapter. And some of these things we'll come back to, namely the Nile and the creation theme, those things hang together. In the second chapter, this is where Moses is born, right? We're introduced to Moses, and we're told that he's a Levite. And when the Bible gives details like that, it's probably important, because we, we're not given much information about biblical characters, and when we are, there's probably a reason for it. But here we're told that he's a Levite. Of course, his brother Aaron will be the first high priest. He's of the tribe of Levi as well. And that's an important detail for this author, because tabernacle sacrifice, priesthood, all this stuff gets introduced in the book of Exodus. And the main guy here, Moses, is of that same tribe and his brother Aaron, who will be the high priest. So that's just sort of laid out there right here at the beginning. A second thing here that in terms of Moses's birth in chapter two, 
is, as you know, the famous story, he's put into a reed basket or a papyrus basket, as the New Revised Standard Version has it. And it's lined with bitumen and pitch to keep it from sinking. And this, the Hebrew word here for this, uh, this basket is a rare word in the Old Testament. It's only used here and then way back in the flood story to describe the ark. Hebrew word is teva, T-E-V-A-H would be pronounced. And that's not irrelevant. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty important because what you have here is you have Moses is like another Noah, and he's in an ark, and he will be delivered from this watery threat, and as a result, there'll be a new beginning for God's people, just like the Noah story. He and his family are saved through a threat of water, and as a result, they'll start something new. So we're seeing, you know, the Noah story revisited here, but not just, oh, what a nice little literary connection. The, the point is more theological, that God is doing something new, and you know he's doing something new when he's saving people through water. And guess where else in this story God is going to save people through water? Exactly, chapter 14 and 15, the departure from Egypt, the crossing of the Sea of Reeds. You've got this water deliverance in this story that actually echoes back to Genesis chapter 1 as well, which I'm going to leave that for later because it's really, it's really clear when you get to chapter 14 that it's not just Noah, but it's we're going back to Genesis chapter 1 in this story. There are echoes of the creation story itself later on, uh, very prominently when we actually depart Egypt. So there's, you have a reed basket. Also, you know, as I mentioned before, you have the sister here who, you know, puts him afloat and follows the basket and sees where it goes, and Pharaoh's daughter picks it up. And so the two of them sort of conspire, really, to keep this infant safe from Pharaoh's hands. Hey, sh- you know, I happen to know this guy's mother. You want me to bring him back and have her breastfeed him until he's ready? Yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead and do that. So three months or so, and then he comes back, and actually it was more than that. It's not three months. Actually, we don't know how long it is. But when he's ready, he comes back, and then he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. Right? So we have this thoughtful women outwitting Pharaoh and finding a way to keep this infant safe, because they're looking at this infant, and it's like, for whatever reason, this is a kid worth saving. At least that's that's Pharaoh's daughter's point of view. This is you know, Moses' sister would not have that kind of an issue, but she looks at him and says, "Wow, this is fantastic." So, okay, so we have these women outwitting Pharaoh again, and then also just you know the name Moses. As I mentioned before it's this probably has an Egyptian echo to it, but in the story itself, the writer gives Moses a very different meaning a Hebrew meaning, from a verb, a rare verb in the Old Testament that means to draw out. Meaning, because I drew Moses out of the water, I'm going to call him Moses. Now, a problem with this is that who's giving Moses this name? Right, it's Pharaoh's daughter, which raises a couple of questions. Number one, did she know Hebrew, right? And the chances of her knowing Hebrew, maybe, maybe not, I think it's unlikely. Most people think it's unlikely. Like, why would she bother learning the tongue of the slaves? They have to learn their tongue, not the other way around. But more importantly, like, why would she give him a Hebrew name to begin with if the whole point is to keep him safe? You know, it's like at the dinner table with Pharaoh, hi, this is Moshe. You know, you just, you're not going to do that. You're going to do something else. So 
it's unlikely that she gave him this name. But here's what's happening. This is this is the pretty standard answer in biblical scholarship. If it's uh, of interest to you, I hope it is. But this is what is called a folk etymology. It's not a a scientific linguistic etymology, but it's a folk etymology. It's it's how the Israelites later explained the name of Moses from their point of view. And it's possible the author may not have, you know, understood Moses's name. Maybe few people did, who knows. But at least the writer intentionally gives this name a Hebrew significance that has something to do with the story itself. So it's unlikely that Pharaoh's daughter named him this, because it would have been rather nonsensical for her to do that. But you know, the name has some historical resonances, right, with Egypt, but from the Hebrew point of view, who cares? Like, that's not that's not furthering our story. I, we're going to look at this differently and give him a Hebrew etymology, which means to draw out of water. One more thing about Moses being drawn out of water, and this is, you know, everybody talks about this, but this parallels a much, much, much older story going back to like the late third millennium BCE of a king, Sargon, of a place called Akkad, A-K-K-A-D. That's where we get the word Akkadian from, if that helps. But this, we have a similar kinds of rags to Rich's story. Uh, he's threatened and he's saved by the court, and um, you know his life is threatened, but he grows up in the court and winds up becoming a great king. And the Moses story follows that pattern very nicely, so much so that Scholars typically think not so much in terms of like the Moses story is borrowed from the story of Sargon from a long time ago, but it's more like a standard way of talking about the origins of a great person, sort of like a rags to riches story. That seems to be what's happening here. And and again, these are the kinds of things that have to be discussed when you're talking about the historicity, right? Like we said earlier, uh, when you talk about the historicity of this episode, these are the kinds of things that you have to really take into account somehow and try to explain. Again, it's it, it may not mean that, you know, Moses never lived, but it may mean that Moses's actual history, the way we think of it, may not be exactly how the Bible here is portraying it, like where he got his name from, right? This is a Hebrew overlaying. This is not really mythical. We'll get to mythical overlays later, but this is still a, a legendary or a theologically meaningful way of telling the story that really speaks to the people who are recounting their past and setting a vision for their present and a vision for their future. You know, I, I think if we're expecting this to sort of be totally distant from history and have no connection, let's say, with the Sargon story, I, I think that's a tough hill to climb. You know, uh, Using literary motifs from other nations is like not unheard of in the history of humanity. You sort of do that. You you learn how to tell stories from the environment that you're in. And that seems to be what's happening here as well. Moses is already being styled as clearly this guy is going to be a great leader. Look at how his story is beginning. This is how you tell the story of a great leader in that time. Okay, then he flees... I do a little more. We got some time here. Then he flees, little Moses, to Midian, and he flees there because he was found out. You know, he he saw a, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he intervened and he killed the Egyptian, hit him in the sand. Way to go, Moses. Way to not be impulsive. But you see, what's happening here is that we're seeing Moses as a grown man, 
Right? We know nothing of his infancy except for that little story, but here he's a grown man. And he's doing now what he's going to be doing later on. He's protecting his people from the threat, from the Egyptian threat. Actually, this whole chapter two here that talks about Moses' flight to Midian is a preview of coming attractions. We're seeing Moses do things that he's going to be doing later on in his life throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So he saves a slave from the Hebrews, he protects his own people. But then the next day he sees two Hebrews arguing and he gets in the way of them and they say, what are you doing? You're going to kill one of us too? There's this whole grumbling and rebellion against Moses' authority on the part of his own people that pops up a lot. If you know where the story goes, it pops up a lot in the story of uh, Moses throughout the next few books of the Bible. So we have another example here of something that is a, a preview of coming attractions. And the biggest one is that he flees, and where does he flee to? He flees to Midian, which anticipates the same path that the Israelites will take later on. See, he goes to Midian, we're jumping ahead here, but he meets Yahweh on Mount Sinai, and Yahweh says, go get the people and bring them back here to worship. So he's, it's almost like a trial run, escaping Egypt to go to Midian, he'll come back and then he'll take the people. More subtly, however... This, this story of going to Midian, it has another echo of something in Genesis, namely the Joseph story. Right? Joseph is cast into a well by his brothers, but then sold to the Midianites who then give, them over, give him over to the Egyptians. So there's a, a Midian connection that brings Joseph to Egypt, and like there's a Midian connection here too with, with Moses that'll bring him back to Egypt. And Midian is also, if I remember this right, he's also one of Abraham's sons through Keturah, named Midian, right? So, so there, there's something patriarchal-ish, <laughs> that's not even a word, there, there's something about the ancestors in Genesis that is evoked by the word Midian. Another point about this flight to Midian is this is where he's going to meet his wife by a well, Zipporah. She's the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian. And this, again, connects him to these ancestral stories in the book of Genesis, namely Isaac and Jacob. They both meet their wives by a well. What is it about a well? It's like a bar. That, I don't know what it is. It's just where you meet girls or something, but you know, probably not. It's just, it's a motif. You know, it's the desert. You got to drink and you meet people by a well. And, but he's doing it too. See, this is a, a continuation of this theme from Genesis. And then one last point, and then we'll stop for today. We see here at the end of chapter two, I think, a very, very important moment in the story that is worth remembering, and it's the last, uh, what is it, three verses of chapter two. I just want to read them. Uh, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. So this, this pharaoh who had oppressed them and enslaved them, he dies, right? The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, they, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. The reason I want to draw this out just a little bit is because this is giving us the reason for the Exodus. Why does God deliver his children from Egyptian slavery? It's basically to keep a promise to the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This, this is who God speaks to in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And especially in chapter 15 where he's engaging Abraham, and he says, listen, your ancestors, or your descendants, rather, are going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but I'll get them out, and I'll bring them into this land, and everything will be fine. 
See, this is a promise that God made. It's not simply God hates slavery. Forgive me, God clearly doesn't hate slavery because there are slaves all over the place. There are even laws in Exodus about what to do with slaves and how to keep them and how to treat them. Slavery is not a bad thing. Not for this God, not for here. Right? So it's not just, I don't want slaves, and I, I hear you crying out, I hear you groaning, and I don't like slavery. It's more, I made a promise to Abraham, and I'm going to keep it. That's, that is the reason why they're delivered from Egyptian slavery. And then the last verse, I love the last verse here because, and if I can throw a little Hebrew on you here, in, in English, it's rather cumbersome. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. But in Hebrew, it's, it's, it's just a few words. God saw the Israelites. God knew. And I just love that. God saw, God knew. He's, this is not taking God by surprise. God is going to do something. And from here on out, what we're really going to see is we're going to see what God is going to do to deliver the Israelites. Not so much Moses, but God sees and God knows. And now something absolutely is going to happen. All right, folks, well, we're going to stop there. That's not bad. We did half of this uh, preparatory section, one to four. We'll finish it next time, whenever that'll be. I have no idea. I'm not planning this out, folks. It's just going to happen by divine direction, I think. It's just going to happen. But uh, until then, and as always, thank you for listening. Folks, when you press download and then push to listen, we're very thankful that you're letting us into your lives. We don't take that for granted at all. And one last thing. This is important. This will change your life. Three simple words. Grab some swag. You can go to our store at thebiblefornormalpeople.com and you can find t-shirts, various colors, even youth sizes, all sorts of fun little sayings on them, and polo shirts, which I have, and fleece hoodies, hats, beanies, all different colors and sizes. We have a lot of mugs, tote bags, and we even have onesies for your babies. We're actually working on an adult onesie, but we're trying to figure out whether that's actually legal in the state of Pennsylvania. But if it is, oh boy, you're going to see adult onesies here on this website. Because why not? That's why. Because <laughs> it's how we roll, man. That's what we do. Okay, folks. Anyway, thanks again for listening, and we'll uh, be with each other next time. See ya. See ya.